0: Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32. I encourage you to have that text open on your lap as we look into the Word this morning. It happened that we read 1 Samuel 17 today just because we're moving through the, the life and ministry of David during this section of the year, just acquainting ourselves, reacquainting ourselves with that portion of Scripture. I'm not sure we could have had a better passage before us today than that one reminding us of the power of God to do as He pleases in this world. That's the same thing we're going to see in the text of Scripture this morning. In fact, it's my intent, you know, I tell you I answer these four questions at the beginning of each of my sermon notes each time I preach. The third one is, what do I pray this message will move God's people to do? Well, this morning, I pray that through this, you will be strengthened in your confidence in and allegiance to the power and purpose of God in this world. That could be a bit of an abstract aim, unless I tell you in advance that's what it is. to, To be strengthened in your confidence in and your allegiance to the power and purpose of God in this world. I think that's what we're seeing in Acts chapter 9 into chapter 10 here. I think that's surely what we saw enacted on the battlefield in Israel as as Israel faced the Philistines, their enemy. God met them and showed them his power and purpose in their lives. Listen now to the word of God You might not immediately make that connection, but that's why we're going to go through the word today to hear that connection as we move through this passage. Acts chapter 9 verse 32 through chapter 10 verse 8. Listen now to the word of God. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then Calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, centurion of the, uh, the of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now... Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So reads the word of God. I remember when I first heard the testimony of Charles Coulson, it was shortly after the release of his first book titled Born Again back in 1976, so that goes back, well, a ways. I was in high school at the time, and it was just a few years after the Watergate scandal had caused President Richard Nixon to resign from office. Colson had been special counsel to the president and a ruthless operator in Washington. Well known for that among the inner circles. As for me, I had received Christ as Savior at that point, and I believe I had actually already begun to sense God's call into ministry at that age. But on, so on some level, I was aware of God's, God's sovereignty, And of His power, His omnipotence, although I had not yet embraced the doctrines of grace that are so dear to us this day. But I also remember having a new feeling at that time, and I think it's part of what the Lord used to open my eyes to the fact that salvation is of the Lord. It's His work for His glory. I remember that if God thinking that if God could save Charles Colson he could save anyone. That thought just descended on my heart as what a 15-year-old at the time. If God could save Charles Colson he could save anyone or to put it more broadly if God could do that he could do anything. And that then awakened another question in my heart that has followed me through the course of my ministry life. That experience immediately awakened within me a curiosity of what God might do. What He might do. And I think that curiosity, that hunger, that thirst, is what drives even our Grace Church vision prayer to this day. Where we, in summary are asking God to do among us all that he can do through the work of Christ while we're still living in a fallen world. That we would experience that as a church. That we would know the fullness of what God can do in fallen human beings before fully and finally delivering their salvation. Wouldn't it be wonderful to experience that in the church? The fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience this side of heaven. We can pray that together, and I honestly, in my own heart, tie that request back to these very days that I'm describing here. Well, my friends, I believe Luke intended a similar response among his readers after he wrote the account of the conversion of Saul. I think this conversion story has even more power than the one that I read at age 15, Luke intended a similar response among his readers when he wrote this account of the conversion of Saul. He wanted them to finish that story thinking if God could do that, He could do anything. And that starts raising the questions then. Who might God save next? How will He do it? Can anything stop him or impede the spread of his word, the spread of his gospel? What all might happen as the Holy Spirit enters this picture, gaining more and more influence as the gospel spreads? What might happen? And what will happen? And you could add your own questions to that as you see this take place, as you're drawn into this story as the story of our forebears, of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith, say, what might God do here and here? Well, Luke takes us off into a series of accounts here in our passage today that seems crafted to address such questions to get us thinking in the direction of what god might do it picks up here in chapter 9 verse 32 and this section goes all the way through 1118 at least and possibly as some estimated on through chapter 12 to the very end verse 25 but we can't cover all of that today so what i'd like to do is just take us through his introduction and i think that's the section that's before us today and even this portion about uh, Cornelius here, as chapter 10 begins, I really think the story of Cornelius begins in earnest in chapter 10, verse 9. And I think this paragraph is intended to go with the two that are before it as a sort of on-ramp to seeing who God is going to save next and how He's going to do it and what it all means. So this section picks up at 9.32, goes through at least 11.18, perhaps 12.25 but we're just going to cover the introduction today in order to see how Luke begins to set up the answer that he will eventually give to these questions. So through these three encounters that you see here that we have just read together, each with a more challenging hurdle than the previous one, Luke sets us up to see what God can do. And he's doing all of it right before our eyes we're seeing what he's doing what he will do what he can do the outline we're going to follow is just going to divide it up into those three vignettes that you see on the page there first of all disease is no obstacle to the to god's saving power and purpose that's anas's story death is no obstacle to god's saving power and purpose that's tabitha's story how about religious prejudice and that's the question. And we finish with a question because really this is the introduction. And the completion of this story picks up next week. And by the way, Dave Patty's going to be here next week preaching Cornelius' story. It's going to start in, in, uh, in verse 9 and take us, I think, down through 43, I believe, is next Sunday's passage. So we get to hear from another one of our missionaries in this series in the book of Acts. So let's look at this introduction this morning. First, disease is no obstacle obstacle to God's saving power and purpose. Look at those verses there, 32 through 35. Peter was, as we see here, out and about among the churches. He's probably just visiting them. This is that time of peace. Remember how the story ended about Saul? There was a season of peace that followed his conversion. So because of that, Peter is out and about, visiting the churches, teaching in the churches. And he came to the town of Lydda, which is a ways up northwest from Jerusalem near the coast. And Aeneas was there, a paralytic, bedridden for eight years, verse 33. And we can see this is a pretty brief story with some detail, but really a small portion that is given by Luke to Aeneas' story, dramatic as it is. Verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. Now Luke's streamlined telling of Aeneas' story here, of this first encounter, seems really intended, even in its brevity, to recall Jesus' healing of the man who was lowered through the roof in Caesarea that Luke recorded back in chapter 5 of his Gospel. Jesus said a very similar thing to him at the close of that healing. He said, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. One wonders why so much interest in the gospel writers, in the beds of these paralytics. But that's really not the most central point. It's a point that echoes and helps us make the connection. But it's not the central point at all. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 5? Do you remember when the paralytic was lowered by his friends down into the room and Jesus there healed him? But what was the first thing that Jesus said to that paralytic as he was lowered through the ceiling? The first thing he said is, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees that were there were incensed as they heard that. No one could forgive sins but God alone. Who does this guy think he is? Well, Jesus' next words there in Luke 5 were, why do you question in your hearts? And then he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home. That's the story in Luke 5. That's the echo that we're hearing here in Acts 9. The clear implication there was that they would believe that it was far easier to say your sins are forgiven than it was to say rise and walk because no one could really test whether his sins had been forgiven or not. It was an invisible action. So Jesus did what they would perceive to be the harder thing. He told the man to rise and walk as a demonstration of the fact that he could actually also do what really was the harder thing, namely, forgive his sins. He had the authority to forgive sins. And in order to prove that, he raised a lame man so that he could walk. Luke finished that account saying, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Similarly, here Luke ends in a similar fashion in verse 35 and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. What we get here at this moment is that the same Jesus who saved Saul, the same Jesus who raised the paralytic, raised Aeneas, healed Aeneas, the miracle displayed his power. And his purpose. And he saved many more here in Lydda. There's the focal point now. The salvation of those who see. This is a foretaste of what salvation fully delivered is going to entail. What it's going to look like. And as Peter is used by God to perform this miracle with Anais. It's finally now doing the work it was intended to do. It's saving many who were present. Meanwhile, a few miles away in Joppa, the situation was not nearly so jovial. Tabitha was a gracious and generous servant of the Lord, and she had become ill and died. Verses 36 and 37 give us each of those truths. After Tabitha's body had been prepared for burial, the Christians there sent for Peter, whom they'd heard was in Lydda. Maybe this apostle can do something about this circumstance. When he arrived, he was greeted by a number of grieving widows whom Tabitha had helped I love the fact that there in verse 39, there are two different types of clothing, tunics, and other garments that are mentioned there. Tabitha evidently even made underwear for the poverty-stricken widows there in Joppa. A thoughtful woman, woman who attended to the needs of the poor. Peter cleared the room. He knelt. And prayed, verse 40, a detail that only he could have provided, if you think about it. He was alone in the room with her at that point. He then turned to her after his prayer, and reminiscent now of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter, Luke chapter 8, to whom he had said in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, Peter said to this woman, Tabitha, arise. In Aramaic, there would have been one letter difference between Jesus' words and Peter's words here. And the verb that's used here, Tabitha, arise, it's the very same one that was used for Aeneas back in verse 34, Aeneas, arise. It's again the same one that is used for God raising Jesus from the dead, arise, arise. And Tabitha did just as Aeneas had done. She got up. The people rejoiced. And again, many believed, verse 42. The same Jesus who saved Saul and who healed Aeneas. The same Jesus who had raised the paralytic in Luke 5 and the daughter in Luke 8 was doing the same work through his appointed servant here in Acts 9. And in so doing, he saved many more here in Joppa. Then verse 43 gives us a little conclusion to this portion of the story. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. That's a strange detail, but we'll return to it in just a moment. And with that, these first two miracle stories are finished. And for some, the close of the section, and now the Cornelius story begins. But, but as chapter 10 opens, we see a third straight paragraph beginning with some form of, there was a man. There was a disciple. There was a man. I think these common introductory statements are intended to link these three together. I think we're supposed to see them as a unit. And the point of each is clearly the transforming power of God to heal and to save. The transforming power of God can overcome sickness, a formidable opponent, paralysis too, not just a a cold or the flu. It can overcome death, which is clearly an even more imposing foe. Is it possible that it could also overcome prejudice? Even religious prejudice, Jew Gentile prejudice. As Luke tells it, this reads as the largest potential obstacle yet. We're building. And this one is significant in the history of Israel and one that will play out now over the next several chapters so we don't have to say anything more than is needful this morning on this subject because it will be with us for a while now as we move into the story of Cornelius. Let's remember though again Jesus' words, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk. We now know it's easier to say the second Because forgiving sins is an immensely complex matter. Forgiving sins required God to become man. And then lay down His life in payment for the sins of all who believe. Yet, Jesus came for that precise purpose. He came to lay down His life. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, the theme of Luke's gospel. He came for that precise purpose. And in this passage too, forgiving sins is the harder task. He's overcome disease. He's overcome death. Now he's going to talk to Peter and to Cornelius about getting together the gospel. Here, in this text, is going to begin spreading to the Gentiles. Healing the paralytic and raising the dead were all preliminary. These miracles were all set up now to the coming act of changing sinful and self-focused hearts. So let's move into chapter 10. Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a devout and benevolent man, but he was a Gentile. A Gentile dog, as he might have been called by virtually any Jew in that day. After all, not every dog is a pit bull. Even a golden retriever is still a dog. And maybe Cornelius was a dog of that sort. Uh, Apologies to those of you who love pit bulls. Golden doodles are actually the finest dogs (laughs) on the planet. Cornelius then was a Gentile dog, even though though he had a remarkable man. He was praying constantly to God. He was generous with the poor, clearly a pattern established for the people of God throughout the Old Testament into the new. The vision came to him at the ninth hour. We've already learned earlier in Acts, that's the hour of prayer. So it's probably as Cornelius was in prayer that this angel interrupted him. Anyway, an angel visited him there in verse 3. And the angel said that God had taken note of his prayers and his gifts to the poor. Can you imagine hearing that message from an angel? Verse 4, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And I've been dispensed from the courts of heaven to come here and tell you that. That's the angel's message. The angel also said that He should send for Peter, who was in Joppa. By the way, the the city from which Jonah fled God's call to Nineveh, I don't think that's any coincidence. Jonah was called to go to the nations, and there was such hatred of the Ninevites in his heart that he couldn't even bear the thought of going there as a messenger of God and fled the other direction from this city. Now Peter's in this city. He's getting called to minister the gospel to the man that will become the first Gentile convert. Significant geographical anchor in this particular story. Verse 6 He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So we're back to the point that we just read back in chapter 9, verse 43. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Why is this a big deal? Well, I think it's a big deal because according to Jewish law, Peter shouldn't have been residing with a tanner. Someone whose work would have him in contact with dead animals as he treated their skins to make leather. As one commentator put it, the rabbis considered tanning an unclean trade. Something's going on in Peter's life. It sounds like New Testament theology is breaking in already. It's hard to know exactly what to make of this detail, and Luke doesn't tell us explicitly what he intended by mentioning it here, but he does mention it twice, and Luke just doesn't do that without purpose. I think it's supposed to catch our ear. It's supposed to help us see that, that Peter's preparation for his visit to a Gentile home had begun even before his vision in chapter 10, verse 9 and following. There's something going on in Peter's life. We don't know where it started. We don't know how. We don't know what's feeding it. But we can see from his behavior that he's already getting oriented toward understanding that all things are clean for you. What I've called clean, don't call unclean. That will come in next week's text. In any case... Cornelius obeyed the angel by sending two of his servants and a devout soldier. He's having an influence on his troops, this Roman centurion. He sent two of his servants and a devout soldier to Joppa to retrieve Peter. And with all of this, we're now prepared to see if the same Jesus who saved Saul same Jesus who made the lame walk and the dead live, because it's in His name that each of these were done even here through Peter. We're to the place where we're ready to see if the same Jesus who did all of this is even capable of making the hateful loving. Because surely that's the picture as we move into this section. We're prepared to see whether He's going to do that. Now, even without anticipating too much of the detail of the story and without any sort of a need for a spoiler alert, we know where this story is headed. We know that he is going to. But this is the introductory section. And even as we raise the question, knowing that there is no power on earth that can impede the progress of the power and purpose of God in salvation, we're struck with the fact that this is really good news. Is God going to be able to overcome even this Jew-Gentile divide such that the gospel goes forth and accomplishes that which He sent it out to do? Namely, to extend from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth? Is that going to happen? Well, here is the hinge on which that turns. And as we even just raise the question, having seen two miracles performed saying that nothing can stop the power and purpose of God, we now move into this story. This is good news. Wouldn't you agree? I think it's better news than that. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. Yes. It's good news to be reminded that there is no obstacle in this fallen world that can impede the saving power and purpose of God. I want to say that again because as we hear it proclaimed from a pulpit on a Sunday morning, we don't struggle with that at all. That's what we expect to hear in church. But the question comes out of the text. The question comes to my heart this morning, God willing to yours as well. Do you really believe this is true? That there is no obstacle in this fallen world that can impede the saving power and purpose of God? Do you believe that as you walk out of here this morning? After the remainder of a Sunday and a a night's sleep, as you head off into your week, to the workplace, to the neighborhood, to the other involvements where God has planted you, do you believe it there? That there is no power... In this world that can impede the saving power and purpose of God. God's purpose will be accomplished. My friends, in our day, we see many things that we think could possibly stand in the way of it. Many things that could derail it. Many things that could discredit it. What a great time for us to hear this text today. It's good news to be reminded that there is no obstacle in this fallen world that can impede the saving power and purpose of God and to see it played out here in real life circumstances in the book of Acts. It's good news to be reassured that God can heal ailing minds and hearts and not just bodies. It's particularly helpful even in our day When we can tend to lose confidence in God's ability to change hearts and to change minds. We talk often about how deep the theological and ideological divides are in our day. We can talk often about how deep the chasm is, for instance, in the political sphere in our day. Between liberals and conservatives which has always been there, but just seems wider and deeper and more hostile than it ever has before. It's good to be reminded that God can change hearts. It's good to be reminded what is the true source of power in that pursuit. It's good to be reminded that God can still work in people, that it's not profitless, for instance, to hear the words of Paul to Timothy, to pray for our elected leaders and for those people of influence in our day, that it's not wasted time and energy. Believing that God really can not only work through them to accomplish His work, His purpose, but can work in them according to His power and His purpose. I mean, if he could soften and save a Roman centurion, he can soften anyone. Where is our true source of power? Is it in the the beauty of our words in theological or I'm sorry, political debate? We're gonna persuade this world that they're wrong? Or is it gonna take the power of God breaking in? And changing hearts and minds in order for that to happen. And how does that work? How does it happen? It happens as God's people call out to Him in prayer and faith, believing that the God who raised Aeneas and raised Tabitha can still work in hearts and minds to change thoughts and ideas and spread His sovereign saving purpose. But it's not just in the hearts of the unconverted that we need to be reassured that God is still able to work. I believe we need to be reminded that He can even work in our own hearts as we face and perhaps address the social and moral issues of our day that can be so divisive. Again, for instance racial tensions in our nation that have moved center stage once again over the past year plus. They seem to have even confessing Christians posturing against one another and against the culture more broadly in a strange game of brinksmanship that has us much more focused, much more focused on our belief that we're right than on any possibility that we could be wrong in any way. Have us much more focused on the fact that we're right than on the focus of our clear call to love our neighbor for Christ's sake and even to love our enemies. That's the unique calling of the church in our day and yet We can get drawn into these debates as though it's going to be won in that sphere and not be won through the advance of the gospel with the power and purpose of God behind it. We, believers, can suddenly find ourselves in a place of defending the U.S. Constitution or or protecting the quality of life in America more than we are proclaiming the gospel of sins forgiven, judgment absorbed, eternal life granted through the saving work of Jesus. We can also find ourselves in a place where we we want to make sure that sinners in our day know just how twisted and wicked their sins really are. Rather than wanting to be sure that they hear that they can actually be forgiven and reconciled to a loving and merciful and saving God. We believe that nothing can impede the saving power and purpose of God when we're sitting here together in a room hearing the proclamation of God's word but do we believe it when we move out there that the gospel is the best, in fact, the only thing that we have in our hands that can do anything about the challenges we see in our world today. In other words, we can still have hearts that are as hardened as the Jewish hardness toward the Gentiles. We can have the very same disposition toward sinners in our day, flagrant sinners who flaunt their freedoms and their beliefs and call others to to agree with them not just to tolerate them but to agree it's a very difficult thing but what is our answer to that is our answer to stand up equally red-faced and shout back is it to proclaim the gospel with confidence that the true and living God will hear and answer and save and redeem according to his purpose How good is God then to put this passage before us today from Acts 9 into 10, this passage in which He reminds us that there's nothing in this world that can stand in the way of or impede His saving power and purpose in this world, nothing, not disease, not death, not even religious prejudice. It's particularly encouraging at this point in the book of Acts as we see Luke setting up the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles toward the end of the earth. We see him moving in that direction. It's great to be encouraged and reminded of the fact that this God can do anything. I think that's what the miracle stories do for us, linked together with the introduction to Cornelius' story. But it's also really encouraging to be reminded that the same is still true in our day. Still, today, nothing can impede the spread of the power and purpose of God in salvation. There's no obstacle in our world that can hold back the plan and purpose of God, even today. There's no health care situation among us. Even here at Grace Church of DuPage, during this unusual season, physical struggles there's no healthcare situation that threatens the ultimate promise of God that all will be made new and set right at very least on that day when his salvation is fully and finally delivered if not long before then just as a reminder that that day is coming which is what all of these healings were Aeneas died Tabitha died again all that happened in those miracle stories was a proof of the power of God to do as He pleases in this world and to save eternally with a little foretaste of what it's going to be like for all of us when that day comes. So there's no healthcare situation among us that threatens the ultimate promise of God that all will be made new and set right. Surely when He returns for us, if not, in some intentional cases, even before. My friends, there's been no death among us here that threatens the ultimate promise of God that we will be raised with Christ. Physical, bodily, resurrection, with Christ on that same day. Just as we're raised with Him by faith in His saving work, here and now, spiritually raised, we will be raised in body. His own resurrection. His proof of that. His Holy Spirit. His down payment on the fulfillment of all the promises that He has made. Not even death stands in the way. Of the power and purpose of God being realized. And there is no moral or social or political divide in our day that threatens our ability To love our neighbor and even to love our enemies in the name of Christ. To long for and pursue their salvation even while they're still trapped in their sin. That can otherwise be so maddening to us. That part that's maddening. Is that really fed by the gospel or is that fed by the flesh? What is our response when confronted with a moral or social issue that could otherwise make our blood boil? Does the love of God move in at that point? Cool and calm and remind us that nothing can impede the power and purpose of God and His salvation? Such that we become instruments of peace, we become the voice of righteousness the call to saving belief to the only one who can make any difference in these matters that are before us is that where our hearts are drawn that's what acts 9 into 10 is showing us our calling today just as we said at the start is to be strengthened in our confidence in and our allegiance to the power and purpose of God which is still at work in our day. Our calling is to be reminded that He is all-powerful, that His purpose will be fulfilled, and that we're privileged and empowered to be His witnesses in that process. What a joyful place that is. He can actually change you and me into people who act and who speak in demonstration of His power and purpose. His power and purpose to save. And through our words, like through Peter's, many can be called to saving faith. It's not our power after all. It wasn't Peter's either. It's the power of God through the voice of His appointed servant. We have that same calling. We're still pursuing the same ends that they were pursuing here. It's recorded in the book of Acts as it moves toward the Gentiles. We can actually be changed into people who act and speak in demonstration of His power and purpose to save. People who love the lost and who know with confidence that there's no one God can't save if He purposes to do so. That's good news, isn't it? And I have to ask, are you strengthened in that confidence by the stories of Acts 9 and 10 this morning? That what this world really needs is not a new clarion political voice or even just someone who thinks a bit more clearly on moral and medical issues. What this world needs is courageous and loving Christians who are just willing to speak the truth right where they are and make a difference on all of these fronts. that could otherwise trouble us so deeply. We live and act so often as people who have no gospel. Meanwhile, we have a God who works like this. If we're praying that God would do among us the fullness of what He intended to do when He sent Christ to the cross, do you think when some loving gospel witness is going to be among the tools that we use in this body, is it going to be one of the means by which we see fruit born for the glory of God? Oh, I think it's going to be central. What is more central to our calling right now, today, as the church, than the Great Commission? That's our mission. That's our purpose. Yeah, we gather together for corporate worship, and it's corporate worship that's going to outlast mission. So that's the eternal purpose of the church, to grow as worshipers of God. But in this day, worshipers of God who go forth and call to saving faith, all who will believe, and we will be here until that job is finished. Are we in together trusting and believing in a God whose saving power and purpose cannot be impeded? Well, in just a moment, we're going to gather at the table of the Lord to be reminded of and to remember the power, the work that was accomplished in order to grant us that heritage and inheritance. But before we do that, let's pray together and see God to do it among us. And as I'm praying, those who are serving communion as well as the magicians can uh, return to the platform. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a sweet reminder Luke gives us here of your power and purpose in this world. Setting us up with two stories, I'm sure we're selected to bring the whole package along with them the stories that they echo of when Jesus was actually here, but all of it towards strengthening our sense of trust in you as the true source of life-changing power in this world. Well, Father, I pray that as the church, where we have forgotten that you would forgive us and cleanse us of faithlessness, and that you would work in us by your Spirit to strengthen us in just the way I believe we were intended to be strengthened through this text, to be reminded that our God can indeed do anything. And Father, I pray that as we celebrate the body and blood of the Lord that purchased that gift. For us, that as we go forth from this place, so reminded that we would go forth just eagerly looking forward to opportunities to bear witness to the powerful, saving gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of your glorious grace for having provided it.